0: What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Adam Rindy, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to bring to you my special guest, Scott Anderson, the author of The Psychobiotic Revolution, which is a book on mood, food, and the gut-brain connection. It goes into the concept of psychobiotics, how probiotics and prebiotics may influence brain health and brain function. He co-authored this book with microbiome experts John Cryan and Ted Dinan. In this episode, we go into this topic on a very deep level. The episode picks up mid-conversation, so without further ado, we're going to jump right into the episode. If you like this episode, please make sure to click like on your podcast player and subscribe to our channel so that we can further get this message out. Thank you for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it enjoy the episode
1: if we could start with the holo genome perspective and just kind of describe what you mean by that and how that is kind of in my opinion a way to set the stage for today's discussion
2: Excellent, sure. The whole genome idea is that we are always assuming that our genes are the important genes and that we pass them down, and we do. Um, And that is a a major aspect of our personality, the way that we handle stress and all of that. But our genes actually constitute about 1% of the entire genetic complement in our body. The other 99% is supplied by bacteria. So there's thousands of species of bacteria, each of which is, uh, contains hundreds of genes. And those genes are capable of doing amazing things. In particular, um, this is shocking to a lot of scientists and, and still kind of blows my mind, is that they can produce bacteria, can produce human neurotransmitters, including acetylcholine and dopamine, serotonin, things that are typically used by psychiatrists as uh, uh, drugs for uh, dealing with depression and anxiety. So it's fascinating to see the bacteria can produce these. Now, we don't really know how all of that works. And I guess we can come back to that a little bit later. But the idea is that in your gut, um, there are a 100 times more genes than you have in your body. And we have co-evolved with these bacteria over millennia. Um, And the idea of this is kind of striking, but um, we as humans are pretty good at uh, coming up with changes over long periods of time to our genes, but it can take us a millennia to change a gene, Uh, whereas bacteria can change a gene in 20 minutes or so and then produce a flood of new bacteria that have this new gene that they can pick up from other bacteria, or they can pick it up from viruses, and, and they can even pick up some genes from, from humans, and vice versa. Humans can actually adopt genes from viruses and bacteria as well. So there's a lot of crosstalk between all of these things, and it means that looking at us as strictly humans is not the way to see how we are going to respond to diseases or stresses in our lives because we have all these other genes that we need to look at as well. So several of these microbes that exist in our gut exist no place else in nature. They can only survive inside of our gut, which is a fascinating concept in and of itself. And that means that that we must treat them well. There is some speculation that we are actually driving certain of these bacteria to extinction. Um, by virtue of the fact that we're not treating ourselves well and we're not feeding those bacteria properly. Mm-hmm. So this idea of a hologenome, the idea that, that we are really the sum of all of the genes, not just the human genes, but the bacterial genes as well, fits the data quite well and lets us know that we should probably be paying a little bit more attention to the health of our microbes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to think. You know, as you're talking about how the
1: bacteria adapt and will change their genome, it's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Look where they're living. I mean, what a harsh environment! Right,
2: right, right. And they and it's the the, the evidence seems to say that there are. Um, there's a recent study that came out. I think it was just this year that said that they found something like another fifty percent of the genes. Um, or, or the microbes in your gut have been undetected because they have such a small uh, genetic load. And the reason is that they've been able to drop genes. And those genes, when you drop a gene, if you can depend upon the kindness of other microbes, you can survive without these genes. Hmm. And, and as a consequence of losing them, you have less energy needs. So you can act, it can actually be beneficial to be very small and very lightweight when it comes to genes, but those are bacteria that we haven't detected until recently. Um, mm-hmm. So it's possible for these for these bacteria to pick up new genes and lose genes in a sort of helter-skelter way. It's not at all like the way we think of, of humans. It's mm-hmm. very fluid and it's turning out that probably what we should be looking at more than the microbes themselves are those genes. Those are the, the genes that are doing the work And um, although they're associated with microbes, as you can tell by the fact that they keep switching genes around, it's probably not as useful to look at specific microbes as it is to look at specific genes.
1: Interesting, yeah. So it's kind of, it seems like we go back and forth between looking at the organism versus looking at the gene level in science. Right. Um, So, well, you're an expert in brain-gut issues. And I think if you could just describe to us what is the brain-gut axis and why isn't it called the gut-brain axis, or maybe it should be. Um, Can you just kind of tease that out for us?
2: Yeah, in fact, it depends upon whether you're an enterologist, a gastroenterologist, or a neurologist, as to whether it's gut-brain or brain-gut. Uh-huh. Um, so, and this is a field that is involved with uh, immunologists, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, and microbiologists, as well as neurologists. So it's a fascinating field where you have people, there's a lot of intramural sniping, as you might imagine, where microbiologists are wondering what neurologists have to say about uh, bacteria and neurologists are wondering what microbiologists have to say about the brain, mm-hmm. um, but they have all kind of become a little bit more humble in the face of this new science, and they're accepting that there are a lot of things that everybody has to learn about this. Um, the The understanding, the the connection between the gut and the brain goes back to Hippocrates, who basically said all disease starts in the gut, and when he was talking about that, he was also talking about diseases of the mind, because he was one of the first to understand that people are may, people may have mental issues that are actually based upon some physical substrate in the body, and they didn't really know that it was the brain or, or all of that. They, the details weren't there. But because uh, Hippocrates could figure out ways to fix it, he felt that those were not off limits to people who were studying um, medicine and biology. Mm -hmm. Um, Back it up, now you you come up to the more modern era when bacteria were first discovered, Um, and immediately the connection was made between bacteria and diseases, and that was the the, uh, germ theory of disease, and the idea was that basically bacteria were all pathogens. And so we set out to just annihilate them. And we did a pretty good job When the with the invention of antibiotics. We're able to kill a lot of bacteria. Mm-hmm. But recently we started to figure out, wow, some of these bacteria are actually good. And, and that was uh, around the time of Louis Pasteur who figured out that some bacteria were creating wine and that was good. Other bacteria were making your wine go bad. That was mm-hmm. bad. So he's the one who figured out how to get rid of the bad bacteria and, and uh, enhance the good bacteria. And that was a, a, a big breakthrough. And of course we all wine lovers have a, a, owe a big thanks to Louis Pasteur <laughs> for figuring out how to get that to work. Um, and in our bodies, we've seen the same sort of thing. We've seen um, a, a, one of the things, one of the first instances where people understood that there was a weird kind of gut bacteria thing going on was something called uh, hepatic encephalopathy and that's where you have a liver disease but all of a sudden you start going a little crazy you you don't act like yourself you get angry with people um you uh strike out at your relatives and there and everybody was dumbfounded and they found that those people could be helped with a big dose of antibiotics and that was a little shocking it's like what what's going on it wasn't bacteria in the brain it wasn't bacteria in the all, the liver although it's partly bacteria in the liver um, but it was gut bacteria that was influencing this mental problem. And um, the the reason that the gut is the source of all of this is that there's just so much bacteria in there, all of them presumably working uh, to, to help you in a lot of ways but if they can if they get into the blood circulation, none of them are any good. Mm-hmm. Um, and your 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 heart gladly pumps them to everything, and it'll pump bacteria into your liver, and that's where you can get some of these encephalopathies. And so um, it, it's it's quite an interesting connection uh, that made people sit up and pay a little bit of attention to that to to what's going on there. And then there was another one in uh, two thousand um, Walkerton, Canada had a flood and it washed a whole bunch of uh, fecal matter from a chicken farm into the water supply. Mm-hmm. And they got a bacteria called C. jejuni. And that caused, the whole town got sick. Uh, caused the whole town to, go to end up in the hospital. 5,000 people uh, were sick and several people were killed um, by this bacteria. And those people got something called post-infectious IBS, mm-hmm. uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And some of them came down with depression. Um, A good percentage of them had depression that lasted for quite a while until the uh, certain scientists from McMaster uh, University in Toronto um, looked at them. That's Stephen Collins and Principal Mm Berchek. They went and looked at them and with with drugs, uh, antibiotics and stuff, they were able to help these people both with their IBS and with their depression. And that was uh, one of the first times. Again, that was a, a real eye opener in terms of how bacteria can affect your gut. Uh, bacteria can affect your brain, and um, so that was a, that was the beginning. What we were seeing, though, in both of these cases, is how bacteria can give you a, a rotten mood. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. can cause depression. And so the the bigger breakthrough started to come with John Cryan and Ted Dinan, who realized that some bacteria could improve your mood. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where, that's where the, the excitement comes from and and why I decided to do this book was when I looked at that, I just said, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, um, these guys were, (laughs) so at any rate, that's, that's where that stands.
1: Yeah. So it seems like the kind of what you've described is, um, sort of an endotoxin that's coming across from the gut and getting into the systemic circulation or dumping into spaces in the body like the liver, the brain, and it's, you know, sort of a inflammatory problem, which you talk a lot about in your book that, you know, depression specifically and maybe anxiety are related to inflammation.
2: Yes. It seems that inflammation is at the root of probably at least from what we're seeing, probably, uh, 90 percent of chronic diseases. So we're seeing inflammation being at the root of uh, diabetes and obesity, uh, arthritis, um, being at the root of, amazingly, being at the root of uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. That is that is fairly new understanding. Uh, the story with Parkinson's is that bacteria start and create something called Lewy bodies, Mm-hmm. that are in the cells that are in the nerve cells that surround the gut. And it works their way up through the vagus nerve. It works its way up. It takes about 10 years to get to the brain. And when it does, it has the, these Lewy bodies keep spreading up to the uh, substantia nigra where they can cause Parkinson's. And, and these Lewy bodies are quite likely to be some kind of a prion-type disease. Um, w- w- you're looking at uh, proteins that fold differently uh, when they sense bacteria. So it's a, it's probably an antibacterial, uh, effect that is being done that is causing its own per, you know, its own, uh, side effects. Uh, it's your immune system can cause a lot of damage in its, in its eagerness to swi- uh, clean up, uh, bacteria. So that's kind of an interesting way of looking at things. And, and with Alzheimer's, the association has also been there with, in particular, with things like uh, Porphyromonas gingivitis. Uh, that is a bacteria that, is in your, that causes uh, gingivitis in your mouth. But they have found toxins related to that bacteria in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. So for a long time, Alzheimer's has looked at alpha-synuclein and, uh, excuse me, a beta-amyloid. Alpha-synuclein is in uh, Parkinson's. Uh, beta-amyloid is in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. And that has been the subject of a whole bunch of drugs that have been trying to get rid of the beta-amyloid. And getting rid of the beta amyloid has not worked. 400 drugs have been tested that get rid of beta amyloid. Mm -hmm. None of them stop the progression of the disease. And that's likely because the beta amyloid, uh, to to use a fire starter uh, metaphor, um, the amyloid is the fireman. It's not the arson. Mm -hmm. It's not the arsonist. Mm -hmm. And we've been treating it improperly that way. So the the, the actual arsonist would be the bacteria that have managed to get past the blood-brain barrier and then the uh, amyloid is the body's defense mechanism trying to trap them. So getting rid of the firemen is not helping uh, the arson situation in your brain. Um, so inflammation of that kind, any, any time you have what they call a translocation of bacteria across the, the uh, gut barrier um, is, a, is problematic. But it doesn't have to be, actually it doesn't have to be whole bacteria. Just pieces of bacteria can also trigger inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing to, to look out. Uh, lipopolysaccharide (LPS) is something that gets across pretty easily, and that can trigger uh, a pretty strong inflammatory response. Right. So all of these things, these are yeah, these are infections that that get into various parts of your body, and the inflammation itself can be uh, it's it's what you need to do. Your your immune system needs to go after them. But sometimes there's, it, it can't get rid of them. It, the infection is ongoing. The, mm-hmm. the gut is permanently leaky. And so you've always got these bacteria going in. And because it, the immune system isn't perfect, it can sometimes attack you as well, um, attack your own cells. And, and sometimes that's the only way to deal with an infection. Uh, an, an infection that's inside of a cell, the way that you deal with it is to kill the cell. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are infections there are bacteria between cells and there's bacteria in cells and those are different you know inflammatory modes and how the body deals with them is not necessarily the same yeah and so these yeah so these ongoing inflammations that's really problematic and that's probably what is behind almost all the diseases that plague us outside of say uh, infectious diseases
1: okay so yeah, I want to pivot on that because I think that's a really good point. Um, so you describe these two different types of um, mice that are used in studying the microbiome, um, a mice that has maybe very little bacteria, then a mice that has no bacteria in the gut. And can you just kind of tell us a few things, you key points to that we've learned about these two different species of mice and how that's really influenced how we see this gut-brain access.
2: Yeah these uh the early studies with germ-free they call them germ-free mice they raise these mice they deliver the the babies through a sterile c-section and raise them in a completely uh germ-free environment so they they basically have no bacteria that we know of now they may still have phages they may have viruses we don't know for sure it's not sure that that it's completely sterile but as far as we can tell there are no bacteria with these mice and this was a study done with, by by uh, Nobuyuku Sudo in 2003 i believe and he started out with these these uh, bacteria free mice they're in this kind of funky environment where you have to reach in with sterile gloves and stuff to, to feed them. The food has to be all sterile and everything. And those mice are different. They, they expected to see some physical differences, but what they found was behavioral differences, and that was striking. And in particular, they found that they responded differently to stress. And that these mice were, uh, when, when you stress them, they had an overreaction to the stress. In, in other ways, they were a little bit more adventurous. Um, but in some ways, they were kind of like antisocial. So it was different. It, the behavior was different, and they realized that if they gave them some bacteria, a kind of uh, in pathogen-free bacteria, um, that that they could restore their behavior to normal. And that those mice, then the mice that have specific bacteria that we know about, and usually a a small number that you can that you can that it's that's tractable to deal with, say a dozen or so bacteria, uh, different different genre of bacteria. Those mice are called notobiotic. They are not germ free. They have germs, but they have very specified germs, and they're free of pathogens. And so, with those two different types of mice, they were able to find out it's it's hard to know when you have a thousand different genera uh, and species of bacteria in your gut, it's hard to know which one is important and which one is calling the shots, if any. Um, And so you're looking at a a vast and complex ecosystem in your gut. So bringing this down to zero in the case of germ-free or just a dozen microbes, uh, microbial species, in the case of not abiotic mice, the whole problem becomes a lot more tractable. You can start to see networks of bacteria and how they work together to create what they call um, uh, homeostasis in the gut, and when that gets unbalanced, when one species starts to take over, that's called dysbiosis. Although that that term is 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 kind of losing its cachet because it's hard to nail down exactly what dysbiosis means.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the launch of psychobiotics when we started seeing these yes. patterns.
2: Okay. Yes, that was really when it started out um, with with a vengeance. Um, all of a sudden everybody's saying, Well, w- wait a minute. So you're saying that if you don't have bacteria, your brain is different? They looked at their brains and they saw that the development of the brains were different, that they didn't that they had different rates of myelination around the neurons, and that they had smaller hippocampuses. So those are, are hippocampi. Mm-hmm. Um th- that's the part of a little little horseshoe shaped uh, organ in your brain where memories are initially stored um, before they go to long-term memory. And so the, the hippocampus is quite an interesting organ. In, uh, in London, taxi drivers who have to know all the streets in London have giant hippocampuses. And that is uh, a great story for people to realize that the shape of your brain, the size of different parts of your brain can change depending upon your environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can also change and be different depending upon your microbiota. So this is another thing from uh, Kirsten Tillich. Tillich is that she figured out using fMRI that certain parts of the brain were bigger. The uh, the uh, amygdala was larger in some of these uh, women, and the hippocampuses were smaller in some of these women. Huh. Um, um, and wait. these are women that, that, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, just... I want to you said something that just really surprised me. So taxi drivers in London's have in London have larger hippocampus
2: regions in their brain. Yes. So what, yes. what's that all about? Apparently the idea that they have to memorize so many streets causes them to have more nerves generated to accommodate these extra memories. So it's a it's an interesting uh, factoid. It's one of those things that's great at the cocktail party. Um, I guess, uh, if it's a cocktail party full of nerds. And uh, so it's, it's one of those interesting factoids that has led us to understand a little bit more about how the hippocampus works. It's, it's not clear or hasn't been clear historically how much uh, a human brain is going to create new uh, nerve cells. The dogma the for a long time was that we don't get new nerve cells. But we've since understood that we do. And in particular, in the hippocampus, new nerve cells are being generated at a pretty hefty rate. And that is going to cause the hippocampus to get a little bit bigger. Um, nerve cells aren't very big, it, it would take millions of them to, to appreciably increase the size, but that's actually what happens in these taxi drivers. And they just have all of this, they have this map in their head in their hippocampus of, of London and that is uh how they ended up with large numbers of extra numbers of neurons. Um we see the same thing in people who have to do who have to learn a lot of things and memorize them. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that means it it's it ties the hippocampus directly to memory. Um so when you see a a a uh, somewhat atrophied hippocampus in a mouse, you know that it's affecting its memory. Right. Um, and that's one of the things that we saw in, in, uh, in germ-free mice, is that you see that they have a, a, an atrophied hippocampus. And if you give them a new microbe, uh, a new microbiota, you can rescue that, and their hippocampus will grow to a normal size. Okay. Well,
1: yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about, uh, later on, just a little bit about um, FMT, the fecal microbial transplant. And yeah. um, I want to get into that a little bit. Um, if you were, if you were say a listener or a clinician out there and you were just wondering if your brain was, um, affected by your gut and let's say someone has some anxiety or depression, or maybe they have a condition like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, um, or maybe they're having their early onset of dementia and they, and they were just to sit back and say, I wonder if my gut is a problem. What, what would be some next steps that you have that seen from the research and just from you know, taught, having higher level conversations as to the best way to find out if the, the gut is driving it or do we even know?
2: Yeah, well, we do know, and uh, more and more all the time. Um, first of all, you if you look at gut issues like IBS and Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, these things are highly comorbid with depression, um, and and that's one of the first clues that depression is related to the what's going on in your gut. And if you can resolve those things, if you can resolve IBS, which which isn't always easy, of course. Um, if you can resolve ulcerative colitis using various drugs, you can improve the the depression in these patients. So when you come into a psychiatrist, if they there are lots of kinds of depression, of course you can be bereaving, you know you can be in grief, um, and there are financial reasons to cause people to get depressed. But if you can't really find anything in their life that is causing it, you should probably look to their gut and ask them, just ask them. Do you have issues with your gut or do you have IBS? Do you have uh, gassy problems? Do you have problems with diarrhea or constipation? The the whole concept of uh, Parkinson's starting in the gut actually is interesting because it starts with constipation. And most people with Parkinson's have constipation and they have had it for about 10 years, the amount of time it takes for the, the uh, Lewy bodies to move up the vagus nerve. And so these are questions that are not usually asked, and they should be asked. Um, Besides that, we can now do a whole bunch of tests to show if there's low-level inflammation. And in general, when you find inflammation of any sort in the body, the likely source, the most likely source, is the gut, because that's this big kind of uh, uh, very uh, uh, fragile ecosystem where you're supposed to be able to absorb nutrients but keep uh, bacteria out. So you've got this kind of a tough job of letting things in and keeping other things out. It's not easy to do, and when it breaks down, bacteria can get into your system. So the things that people can look for in the blood are things like C-reactive protein, um, and there are other things. Zonulin is something that that uh, is is a part of the tight junctions that pull your uh, make your cells stick together in your gut. And if you see elevated levels of of zonulin or C-reactive protein or several other uh, blood uh, signs of inflammation, that's a really good sign that you've got problems with your gut. And that's also a good thing to look at in terms of depression and anxiety because those things are, to some extent, they are driven by these inflammations.
1: Right. And what goes along with systemic inflammatory markers like CRP is um, cytokine markers that they don't usually offer like in a standard lab, but that's what the researchers use, um, the different interleukin forms that are associated with depression and anxiety.
2: Exactly. You've got these numbered interleukins that are, some of them are good for you that are anti-inflammatory and some of them are pro-inflammatory. And by looking at those, you can get a really good profile of exactly, it'll help you know, whether you've got parasites or whether you have bacteria, whether you have phages, different things will cause different parts of that, of those cytokine systems to light up. So that's an excellent uh, observation, Adam. That's one of the things that we do uh, in our own research. Okay. And what do you think about the,
1: um, DNA sequencing for stool testing? Is
2: that a useful tool now that they're commercially available? Um, yeah, the, there's some issues right now with some of the companies themselves. u seems seems to be blowing up right now. I, I still think that their um, basic uh, research is, is sound, um, and I think that there's something to be learned there. But it's, it's hard to know exactly right now. If you look at studies that are out there, they're going to say the Formicutes to Bacteroides, uh, these are two major genera of bacteria, that that ratio is supposed to tell you something. But every single study that I look at has a different value, um, and sometimes the, the ratio is uh, greater than one, sometimes that ratio is less than one, and sometimes that's supposed to be positive, sometimes that's supposed to be negative in impact. And so right now, I think that that is insufficient to really tell you whether you're sick or not in terms of your, your gut balance. Um, and And again, this also comes back to the idea that these bacteria themselves are hard to pin down, knowing that... Because how do you know what is a bacterial species? Well, you look at its genes. Oh, they're swapping their genes. Well, that kind of make the, blurs the lines between microbes in the first place. So it's kind of tricky to do that analysis with and come away with a feeling that you really nailed it. Um, better uh, a way to look at this is in terms of diversity. and And this comes back to an, an ecological point of view about how your gut works is that Um, A greater diversity, in general, seems to imply greater homeostasis. It implies that not one species or one or two species have taken over, but that everything is fairly well balanced. When you have less diversity, you tend to have a few species that are taking over um, and that that are kind of being bully species that are now out more for their own sake than they are for the sake of the team, let's call it. Um, and so that's uh, something that would be nice if we could get that from the fecal transplants or for, from the fecal uh, analysis. Um, it's hard to see that that's what you're getting right now, and again, this is one of those things where some people can look at this and, and, and get some really good results. The the uh, folks at the Weissman Institute are using fecal analysis, and they're they're getting better results, and then the the new way of doing fecal analysis is not with um, I, I better backtrack for just a second. The, the first way that we used to look at fecal uh, uh, genomes, the fecal, excuse me, microbiota, was to culture them. And not many of those bacteria could be cultured. Um, we've gotten better at culturing, but we've gotten even better at looking at them using DNA analysis. And the DNA analysis that we use is to look at a single part of, a single gene that, co- that corresponds to the ribosomes All of these creatures have ribosomes that are little factories that produce proteins from the genetic blueprint. And that is pretty much conserved from one species to another. So if you look at that, it's called 16S rRNA. That is what most of these companies, like Ubiome, and a lot of the papers that we've seen over the last 20 years or so, um, have been using that to identify uh, bacteria but they can only take it down to the genus level. They can't really get it, very rarely can they get it to the species level. And that has been helpful, but not as helpful as a new form of analysis called whole genome uh, shotgun sequencing. And that looks at every single gene that's in the sample. And from that, they can piece together not only what genes are there, but what bacteria are there down to the species and even subspecies level, um, and they can find other things as well. they can find parasites and and um, so and they can find viruses as well. so these are new techniques that are being used, and that 's one of the techniques that was used in the uh, that large Belgian study that I mentioned earlier um, and that 's one of the ways that they were able to nail down so much more in terms of species than, than any other study that has been done
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so I think you know it seems like. We're, you know, a few of the clinical or commercially available tests will look for pathogens and then look for potentially um, what are called dysbiotic organisms and, you know, potentially um, look at the good, quote, good bacteria that we want to be rich in our gut. So I think that's kind of where we're at right now is um, kind of, but it's interesting to see when you talk about microbiome diversity, could you just briefly talk about some of the terms that you know, we might think about, like the richness of of the gut microbiome, and and how that's even graded?
2: Yeah, there's uh, there are a lot of different ways of looking at richness. The first, the the statistically speaking, this is a ripe field, and I think that it's ripe also for some upgrading. Uh, but we look at richness, just the simplest one is just how many species do you have, how many different species do you have? But another way of looking at it is to find out what is the, the actual numbers. And we're not seeing that in most of these studies you don't see exactly quant- uh, quantitatively how many of the certain species you have. You may see relative amounts, and that's another way of looking at it. Um, but, but it would be nice to know exactly how many of each of these, uh, bacteria that you have in your gut. And you put a quote around, uh, pathogens. And I think that's appropriate too, because things that are pathogenic in a situation of dysbiosis may be perfectly reasonable citizens of a, of a normal microbiome if they are at the reasonable numbers. In other words, uh, clostridia, C. diff, for instance, clostridia difficile is uh, a well-known pathogen that can kill people, especially people who've had uh, antibiotic treatments. Uh, But in your body, Clostridia is some of the more helpful bacteria um, in a normally balanced gut, and they are the ones that produce butyrate, and that is something that is like ambrosia to the cells lining your gut. So Clostridia species are actually very beneficial if they're in the proper ratios and if they are compared with other bacteria, not dominating. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a big issue. And and it means that there's not really such a thing as a commensal bacteria or a pathogen, at least in your gut, um, because it all boils down to how well they're playing with the other bacteria that are down there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I speak a lot with my patients is, you know, it is very host dependent. If something comes back on one of these panels, it could be living, you you could be managing the inflammation or potential inflammation that particular bug is causing in your body versus the next person might be having problems handling it. And so it's it gets very tricky. So I think when people get these panels back, it's, it's important to take a step back and, and say, okay, what is my body actually doing? Am I having signs and symptoms of someone who has a a C diff infection, which those symptoms usually are pretty extreme um, on the scale of most digestive disorders. So yeah, it's, I think it's a really good thing for us to kind of continually revisit is that there's, the bacteria. There's the host. There's the interrelationship between the bacteria and other bacteria. Then there's the relationship between the host and the bacteria. So it's, it takes a right. lot of uh, art to figure out the the significance of these uh, panels.
2: Yes, it's it, it, art is is correct in this case, and that's you know in a lot of science what happens is it starts with art, and then we get a little bit better with with the numbers on it and we can nail things down better, but you're absolutely right. It is fantastically complicated because the, your genes will interact with the bacteria in your gut. And, the, and the, the, what's going on uh, sort of from a bigger evolutionary perspective is that you um, got your gut bacteria largely from your mother, and it, at least in most cases we do. Um, we get it as we come down the birth canal, we pick up some bacteria. We pick up bacteria actually from our mother's fecal matter too, because birthing is often messy. Um, and then we pick up bacteria from breastfeeding. Mother's milk is full of bacteria and those are bacteria that your mother has passed, that is passing down to you from her mother and from her mother before her. And those are bacteria that work well in her system given her specific genetic proclivities. And we find that a lot of these diseases that have genetic components, those genetic components are largely in the immune system genes, the genes that control immunity and how they react to the bacteria that's in your gut. So this is a a huge, uh, uh, complicated affair, very data intensive when we try to, to deal with it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's causing people to scratch their heads who are used to dealing with large databases, but all of a sudden they're realizing, oh, the human database, the human uh, uh, genome, which is large and uh, perplexing uh, and hard to deal with with the data um, with even the biggest computers, now multiply that by 100 because you've missed most of the genes. And so it is really the interaction of all of those genes that is causing your particular uh, situation. And everybody is going to be unique. And that's a a really, uh, um, it's a big wake up call for the whole business is to realize that there is no one size fits all answer to these things. And that's why in my book, I'm really encouraging people to keep notes about what they do, what works for them, and then to go with what works for them And kind of not not to ignore what's going on with everybody else, but don't try and and compare yourself with somebody else who's had a fantastic time with lactobacillus or something. If it doesn't work for you, there might be reasons why it doesn't work for you.
1: Right. Good point. Yeah, so, well, I'm going to move from this excellent conversation um, and background information to kind of moving towards applications and just some sort of practical suggestions yeah so you have um there's some key players in the microbiome i guess we could call them probiotic species um that i'd like to just kind of hear a few comments on because these are when people are going out and looking for probiotics um you know the they're familiar with some of these terms so if we could just talk about these and how they relate to brain health like first of all um maybe some of the lactobacilli species um, and then go into bifidobacteria and then I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the acromanzia
2: Oh right uh, okay well actually let's start with bifidobacteria because that's the one that you start with. Uh, that's one of the first ones that's in your mother's milk that um, started to populate your gut and as you get older you get less and less bifidobacteria which is really dedicated to uh, dealing with milk and milk sugars, um, and goes on to, to lower numbers as uh, you get older. Um, Bifidobacteria, though, is very important and is in things like yogurt, as well as lactobacillus, which is another one that starts, out, starts you out early. Uh, lacto, obviously referring to milk as well. And so you're looking at um, a couple of bacteria there that will start you out early and let you take the maximum advantage of mother's milk. Um, And then as you get older, sometimes the lack of those bacteria is what leads to things like lactose intolerance and stuff. So there are changes in your gut bacteria as you grow, and um, trying to bring some of them back may work. It may not always work. Different people show different results. Uh, Yogurt is one of those things that contains large quantities of lactobacillus and bifidobacter species. And so that's one of the things that a lot of people have really good luck with in terms of probiotics. Um, You can buy probiotics, you can buy supplements. Some of them are good. In my book, I talk about which ones have actually been studied. Um, There are not that many that have actually been studied and some of them, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are, are, are less than honorable. Some of these companies are less than honorable in terms of of what they're putting into their products, so you've got to be a little bit careful about that. It's kind of a wild west right now. The FDA uh, treats it as food and doesn't really look at it, and unless people die or something, they will not come and check out some of these manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, there are some good manufacturers out there, you know, that are that are prominent manufacturers like Procter and Gamble that do produce things, uh, Culturel and and a few other uh, products that are better studied. Um, and so that's, we, in in our book, we try to steer you a little bit more toward the ones that we trust a little bit more that have actual randomized controlled studies behind them. Um, Okay. So like, let's take
1: one of those, like VSL number three, uh, I think is one that you talk about in your book. Um, why would that, why would that be used in sort of anxiety and depression? Like what's, what's the plausible mechanism of the species that are in that particular probiotic?
2: yeah i don't I don't think there there are a couple of things that are are going on here um first of all, some of these bacteria do produce butyrate and butyrate as we've talked as we've mentioned before it's a short chain fatty acid that is actually a a primary food of the cells lining the gut it, it butyrate also helps to heal those tissues as well if they get ripped or and th- and there's a lot of wear and tear on your gut lining um and So a big part of the action of these things is to maintain good gut health. Um, Other parts of it may be involved with those neurotransmitters we talked about earlier. Um, If you've got bacteria that are producing dopamine, then that can go a long way towards soothing your brain. Although it's not clear yet exactly how neurotransmitters in the gut are sent up to the brain, and this is a a place where there's still lots of study that needs to be done. Um, the other thing that's happening, though, and this may be even more important than anything else, is that VSL-3, for instance, is a, is a, has a large number of CFUs, the colony-forming units. It has a large number of, basically, of bacteria in it. Um, those doses are higher than most any of the other bact- uh, uh, probiotics that are out there. Um, it's also one of the few that has more studies behind it than the others. So it, just in terms of sheer numbers... Uh, v s l three may be one of the few that that we would recommend um, and that that is definitely going to have an impact on your gut as opposed to many of these others that are just going to slide right through without making any kind of impact at all. I tried a whole bunch of uh, prebiotics uh, probiotics and prebiotics when I wrote the book and found very few of them did anything at all um, so the 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 numbers of them are probably helping to increase diversity in your gut. And that may be one of the secrets behind a lot of them is that they're just making things uh, more stable, more homeostatic and less dysbiotic um, Mm -hmm. so that you can keep the bacteria in your gut where they belong. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, though, that um, your body does not look like a yogurt maker. Um, yogurt is going to pass through. It's not going to stick – the bacteria in yogurt are not going to stick around and colonize your gut. Th- there may be a few that will, but by and large, they are traveling. They're just just—they're just uh, uh, traveling through, and you need to keep uh, – while they travel through, they can do good things. They can produce butyrate. They can produce neurotransmitters. They can produce hormones. That are beneficial, but they're not going to stay there, and that's why you need to keep eating yogurt. You can't just eat it one day and then say, "Ah, done."
1: Right. Um,
2: so, yeah. And, yeah. And
1: I know we'll talk about prebiotics and and maybe um, some of the more potentially um, longer longer lasting treatments um, that might have like more of a a solid non transitory impact on your gut uh, microbiome in a second. I there's there's one kind of st- I guess the early psychobiotic blend called the Pro-Bio stick and it has the Lactobacillus acidophilus R52 and the Bifidolongum r 7175 And so that was used for stress and anxiety in rats, I believe. Um, any comments on that particular blend and why wh- –
2: Um, Well, that particular blend, as I understand it, that's not that easy to get um, in the first place. I don't think you can get it in the United States, Um, but the Canadian, it's it's a Canadian product and it's, um, the Canadian government has actually uh, anointed it with its blessing as a uh, a genuine psychobiotic. Um, Why it works is still not clear. and, And the studies with humans are mixed. Um, Some of the things like bifidobacteria longum um, have been shown to help with uh, anxiety, but not with depression. So there are some some issues that are are a little bit confusing in terms of what we're seeing. And and a lot of these studies came from mice, and there are specific bacteria that work well in mice. Uh, One is Bacteroides fragilis. But that is actually uh, potentially uh, pathogenic in humans. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful about the, the, what they call the psychopharmacological bridge between animals. Uh, we cannot th- th- assume that, that what works in a mouse will work equally well in a human. Um, although there are some really good studies that show that we can at least, on, in broad strokes, we can trust uh, the connection. And th- that's where, we'll, we'll, where you get into the fecal transplants uh, transplanting fecal material from a depressed human to a germ free mouse can cause that mouse to be act uh, as if it were depressed, so that not only shows that it crosses the species boundary but it also shows causality That means mm-hmm. that this is not just an associational study we now have, you know you give them that and that happens so that 's um, amazing yes so those are those are studies that give us a, a that, those are some of the first studies that made me say, "Oh, well, this is definitely real. This is not. This is not just some strange association that could be explained many other ways."
1: Yeah, just so you know, for the listeners, like if you're getting a, uh, if you're going in for a, a fecal microbial transplant, there, you know, there's a whole donor selection process, and yes. you're screened for pathogens and you know, blatant infectious organisms. Now I understand um, people are being screened for IBS. Um, patterns of IBS before being accepted as a donor, and now this is a third element to look out for, which is the
2: mental health of the donor. Right, and it definitely something that you want to look out for is is, is this a cheerful person, um, and also obesity. We're looking at that too. It, there have been at least anecdotally there have been cases where people have had fecal transplants from an overweight person and they immediately became overweight. Within, within just weeks, um, their weight started to balloon. And that is perhaps related to the fact that certain bacteria are more efficient than others. And the efficient ones will just uh, eke out the last calorie in any food that you've got. Um, whereas the slackers are the ones that we probably want more of because they'll let a lot of things go through and, you, and will not uh, help you put on weight. And in that category is acromantia, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, acromantia acromantia mucinophilus is uh, the mucus lover. Um, will actually eat your own uh, mucus if it does, if you don't feed it properly. Um, but it is associated with lean people, and it's likely because it's not very efficient at converting food into calories. Uh, so, so these are things that that you, if you are getting a fecal transplant because you're dying of C. diff, um, you, these things are are less of a trauma to you than just surviving this episode. Right. Um, but they are still things that you want to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a very good point because you know. Uh, Fecal microbial transplant has moved into research in other conditions besides C. diff, like inflammatory bowel disease, yeah. IBS, um, autism, spectrum disorders. So it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, think as the more acute the problem is, maybe it's, you know, it, it's kind of like a background issue versus if it's a chronic problem, you, you might need to really weigh in some of these other factors.
2: And um, yeah. and, and, And so far, the results are showing that fecal transplants seem to have some longevity to um, them—at least for a a couple of years or more in some instances. You know, it depends, I suppose, on what problem you're trying to solve. Right. Um, But but, and and it comes back to this idea that we had that we talked about before in terms of how are your genes, your human genes, going to react to these new. Uh, uh, microbes in your gut. And so there may be some issues where it's not going to work as well long term. But right now, the fecal transplants are a marvelous uh, therapy, uh, a fantastic treatment that with up to 95% success rate. Um, Unfortunately, the FDA has decided that, that fecal matter somehow is a drug. And so they are being pretty tough on, on them. And one person has died from a fecal transplant mm-hmm. and the FDA put a stop to it. So for now anyway, uh, they, they have an abundance of caution um, and, and kind of maybe not a really well-balanced view of this because so many people's lives have been saved. One person died um and and they and they put a stop to it so uh, yeah. uh, that's something where you know you we just have to keep an eye on this and make sure that the fda knows what we think about this as as people who are uh, uh doctors um they have a voice and they should write to the fda and say look this is something that we still need to be able to have uh, in our armamentarium this is a fantastic tool
1: yeah especially since people are are you know some people are out there doing this kind of like back alley kind of yeah. transplants it's...
2: my my advice to your listeners is don't do that yeah um, I, you, I would agree. Not, you would not <laughs> it's very much like an organ transplant and you wouldn't do a heart transplant in your bathroom um, so just just give that a pass and go to the doctor and and figure out a way to get it done even if the FDA is clamping down on it, the, your doctor should be able to get a, uh, a waiver for you um, if, if you've got a, a good reason for it. Yeah.
1: Well, let's let's dive into dietary measures. Um, there's just a couple things that I think this is a good place for us to kind of uh, last segment of the talk is um, you talk about the um, – psychobiotic food pyramid. I want to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Um, I also just want to talk about some of these dietary moves that seem to have an influence on the microbiome, such as intermittent fasting, uh, ketogenic diet, or potentially like a vegan high fiber diet. If you could just kind of pepper in a few thoughts about that. And then I want to just kind of hear like, you know, for, to leave our listeners with thoughts about the psychobiotic food pyramid.
2: Yeah, the idea of uh, our problem, the the fact that we have such a high incidence of depression and anxiety in the world right now, the WHO, the World Health Organization, rates it as the top disability in, in the world. Um, and the reason that that's happening, it seems to be related to our uh, processed foods, processed foods that started to really take off in the 1950s um, made everything easier for people and made really delicious foods like Cheetos and donuts and all of this stuff that are easy to buy, uh, cheap to buy, um, convenient and, and tasty. Uh, but in order to do all of that, they took out the fiber. The fiber was the thing that kind of made it coarse and not refined white cakes and all of that stuff. So it was a decision that we made and along with that decision we also decided to get rid of uh fat in our diet based upon an old study by Ansel Keys in the 1940s or 50s who said that uh that fat was bad for us and when we took out the fat fat may be bad for us but when we took it out we replaced it with sugar and sugar is definitely not good for us and and, and as days go by we find out more and more about why but at least one of the latest studies says that sugar uh, gets rid of a colonization factor. It, it basically s- stops certain bacteria from reproducing. Um, and those bacteria are unfortunately the good bacteria like bifidobacteria. So um, when we did this to ourselves, and we've done it to ourselves, we have nobody else to blame. We took out the fiber without knowing what we were doing. And it turns out that the fiber that are uh, eaten by, say, hunter-gatherers that still live in Africa, the Hodza and some other people that uh, live out in uh, a kind of a more uh, traditional, older type lifestyle that we, not that long ago, evolutionarily, we participated in too. Um, to the Hadza, the uh, fast food is a gazelle, because um, they are fast, and you have to run after them. And so there's a lot of running involved. There's a lot of exercise involved. There's very small amounts of meat, really. Um, most of it is coming from people who are standing back from the hunt and are digging up roots and whatnot, and their levels of fiber consumption are double, triple, even quintuple the amount of fiber that we eat today. So, what is fiber? Fiber is a oligosaccharide. Um, oligosaccharides are just the as the saccharide gives you the clue that it's a sugar, but it's a uh, oligos mean that they are several sugars stuck together into a chain and those are not absorbable by uh, our own intestines so they pass straight through the small intestines and make it through to the colon where they are food for bacteria the bacteria just love these oligosaccharides and depending upon what kind they are different species will love them and depending upon what the ph is that will uh, tell you what kind of bacteria are going to use what kind of oligosaccharides, and the pH changes as you go through your colon from about pH of six or so to a normal pH of seven uh, toward the, the anus. And so those, that, that uh, uh, change in pH and those uh, oligosaccharides of various types are what help you establish an ecosystem in your gut. Um, so getting the fiber back into your diet is extremely important and probably the number one recommendation that we have, uh, for how to fix this mess that we're in, um, and to, to reestablish a normal, uh, ecology of gut. Um, so the foods that have higher fibers, uh, include, uh, artichokes, Jerusalem artichokes and regular artichokes, uh, asparagus, leeks, onions. These are all good foods. Uh, uh, The cruciform vegetables like broccoli and stuff are good. Um, It's also good to get these uh, phytochemicals in there from colorful foods, um, especially leafy foods. And if it sounds like I'm describing a vegan diet, I sort of am. Um, The idea is that vegan or vegetarian diets, from the point of view of your gut, are probably superior. Um, But There is also a need for anti-inflammatory omega-3s, and that's easier to get from things like fish. So what you end up with is a diet that's kind of vegetarian, kind of basically Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. and that's the diet that is associated with the best mental health. So something along the lines of get a little bit of meat, and especially fish, and largely uh, a plant-based diet, will go a long way toward establishing a uh, gut microbe, uh, microbiota that will help you feel much better and uh, improve your mood. Okay. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting.
1: On, in your book, I, I was looking at some of the traditional diets that you were talking about. And um, yeah. you know, the, if you were to kind of blend three model diets, the Okinawan diet, the Mediterranean diet, and the Scandinavian diet, diet um seem to have and blend them all together not that i'm suggesting that but if you pull if you look at (laughs) that that integration of the different elements and strengths of those diets that really is helpful for the microbiota
2: yes And, and all of those diets include fish and as well as as vegetables and the the interesting thing though i think i point this out in the book is that these people have had thousands of years to come up with their diet based upon their indigenous vegetation and and whatever meat that they can find locally, and so they have come up with something that works well for them um, it, it when we when all the, everybody moved to the United States and brought along a little bit of this and a little bit of that, we did kind of blend it all up, but we also blended it with healthy or healthy uh, hefty. Um, German, Germanic uh, sausage and all of this stuff. And we haven't had the thousands of years to figure out which of these things fit together best. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, I think that's why people, a lot of people have settled, just, you know, keep it easy, go for a Mediterranean style diet. They've got uh, a lot of veggies. They've got a little bit of fish. They've got some nuts um, and a, a little bit of wine. Um, and I think wine apparently helps to make your gut uh, more permeable. And permeability is something that you want for nutrition, but you do not want it to be permeable enough to let bacteria through. And it could be that wine is doing that, at least uh, consumed in the kind of quantities that a lot of anxious Americans who are self-medicating are using it. Uh, oh, they may be overusing it to the extent that they are actually putting, uh, making a leaky gut. Um, so. Some small amounts of wine have been shown to be good, although you have to be careful to notice that a lot of those studies are paid for by the wine industry. Um, And so although small amounts seem to have a beneficial effect, it's one of those U-shaped curves where teetotalers uh, are, are worse off and heavy drinkers are worse off. And right there in the sweet spot with one or two glasses a night, um, is where the current recommendations are for wine consumption. But it's one of those things that if you can't control it, you should probably throttle back because it is not necessarily doing your gut any favors. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's aspects of what wine provides that we can get in our diet. So like polyphenols, you know, we can get the right from berries and olive oil. And, and so, you know, I think, Resveratrol, if that's why people are drinking wine is also available in supplement form. So these are all, these are all good points that you're bringing up and uh, good things to think about. I know there's a researcher out of um, I believe he's an Israel um, learner who does a lot of studying on intestinal permeability and he definitely brings up the, the harms of alcohol on the, the gut lining. So yeah, it's, it's a
2: good thing. Yeah. So you're, you're right. Yeah. Resveratrol and, and some of those other polyphenols are definitely indicated. Um, but the alcohol itself may not be such a great thing. Sure. So, and of course that's the reason we're drinking it. We're not drinking it for the polyphenols. We're drinking it to get a little relaxation at night. And, and, you know, those, it's, it's one of the things that is very popular in terms of dealing with depression and anxiety, um, is that, uh, we self-medicate, and that's one of the things that we do the most. Uh, uh, a drink at night helps you deal, take the rough edges off of a tough day dealing with a, a tyrannical boss. Um, so I'm not saying don't do it, but just watch it. And if it seems like you're feeling sick because of it, just throttle back.
1: Yeah. So I think that that kind of brings us full circle because if you're, you know, if if the topic of today is how to address your mental health through good gut health. Um, And, you know, I think you really did a great job of kind of walking us through all the different aspects of that and also um, talking about how the richness of our gut microbiome may influence inflammation in our body, which may influence our mental health. And um, so this has been excellent, is there, a take home message you'd like to give us. Um, uh, and then also I'd like to hear about what you're up to professionally and if you could tell us a little bit more about if people, um, how to follow you, I know you're pretty active on Twitter and, um, also I want to encourage everybody to run out and get your book and just, if you could talk about anything else you're up to.
2: Yeah, I'm totally in favor of everybody running out and getting the book. (laughs) Um, the book is called the psychobiotic revolution. Um, It's by Scott Anderson, and it's with John Cryan and Ted Dinan, who are two dynamic geniuses who have really done a lot in the uh, world of the gut-brain axis. Uh, Ted Dinan is the guy who came up with the word psychobiotic um, to describe probiotics that also can improve your mood. Um, So these guys are some of the tops in the world, and the book is out from National Geographic. You can get it at Amazon or any other bookstore. Um, so we I encourage you to look at it there 's a lot of detail in there there 's like five hundred references uh, in the book, so it 's very well researched and um, you th- there are just m- what what we talked about today is just a sampling of what 's in the book. Um, you can also find uh, me as you mentioned on Twitter at uh, at Psychobiotic and uh, on Twitter, and that's uh, we've got 14,000 people there who are mostly professionals, but all people are uh, encouraged to uh, join up and learn about the latest in research. I'm posting things uh, from researchers around the world uh, who are coming up daily with new uh, ideas about the gut brain axis and how psychobiotics can improve our mood. Um, the take home, I think, uh, uh, for all of this is that we need to understand not all depression is, comes from the gut, but the stuff that does come from the gut can be treated and can be dealt with. And the, although you can take uh, probiotics and they can have some effect with some people, um, you can take prebiotics, which are the fiber and it comes in pill form. You can actually get powders and pills that uh, contain oligosaccharides, uh, galacto oligosaccharide fructo oligosaccharide These are some of the things that are out there. They're called Goss and Foss to make it a little bit less uh, tedious. Um, you can uh, eat fermented foods and we encourage people to try things like yogurt and sauerkraut and kimchi and kefir. Um, those things are loaded up with uh, lots of beneficial bacteria and um, can do you a lot of good. I think, though, that our favorite recommendation, we have two of them. One is exercise. Exercise can do an alarming amount of good to your uh, microbiome, can help your gut lining, um, and as a consequence, uh, has shown great efficacy in dealing with depression and anxiety. So we really recommend, if, if exercise were a pill, you'd pay a million dollars for it. Um, and once you get into it, it's not nearly as bad as it sounds. Uh, and the other thing is diet. And we recommend diets like uh, the Nordic diet or the Okinawan diet, or in particular the Mediterranean diet, because they are largely uh, vegetable-based, uh, where you get a lot of the, the fiber that we're talking about, the fiber that will target your microbiota and will increase the amount of uh, healthy neurotransmitters, uh hormones, and uh also the short chain fatty acids that are so good for your gut.
1: Yeah. Well wonderful. Well I thank you for really putting this out there in the world. Um it's really helped a lot of my patients and and to have a a reference to go deeper into about the brain gut access and to understand why treating the gut can have such a profound impact on our overall health. I thank you for really putting this out there and kind of launching into this further, um, for, for not only me, but you know, all my patients and colleagues. Thank you, Adam. It's been great talking to you. Okay. Well, you have a great day and, uh, we
2: look forward to keeping in touch with you. Sure. Anytime. Give me a call and we can continue this story because it just keeps growing. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Rini. just giving you some takeaways from today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. There's a few tools that we use clinically to help with brain-gut measurement. One is the organic acid urine test. You might look that up. Um, There's a couple offered out there. Great Plains Diagnostics and Genova Diagnostics are two of the companies that do offer this particular tool. I also think measuring plasma neurotransmitters is useful. Um, We do measure neurotransmitters such as dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin metabolites, GABA metabolites, and we can do some of these tests with plasma, we can do them with urine as well. Um, However, plasma seems to be maybe the most accurate. And some of these tools may help with just assessing how the brain and the gut is currently relating from a neurotransmitter standpoint. I also recommend people looking into nutrigenomics. Um, this is using gene data to look at how your gene interrelates with nutrition and, and biochemistry. And there's a lot of tools out there. I particularly use Opus 23 in my practice. But um, I thought you know people should know that there's some ways to kind of dig in and look at how the brain and the gut is interacting. Heart rate, variability, heart rate variability measurement is a good way of assessing vagus nerve function, which is a connection um, and sort of a metrics for measuring brain-gut function. And we're
0: going to be learning more about how these probiotics can influence mood. And um, this was a great episode, you know, there are printing out the
1: second edition so i imagine we will be receiving more and more research on this end as the years go forward there obviously needs to be some other alternatives and adjuncts to improving mental health beyond uh, antidepressants Uh, so this is a hopeful and inspiring area of health and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you down the road on the next episode Please like this episode and share it with your friends and loved ones. And uh, let's get the word out on some of these other tools so people become aware. And also so that we can highlight some of these amazing people out in the world that are trying to treat the root cause of illness. Take care.